We're looking in John uh, chapter 10. Uh, the text says John 10, 11, but I'm going to back up to, to verse 7 uh, as we look at this particular passage. I was reading an account of a, of a man who was arrested and eventually did, uh, did jail time. This was about five years ago uh, because of what they found in his apartment. Now, it could be gruesome. It could be you know, scary. It could be a number of things. But what they found was 2,500 pounds of a particular item. And you think, wow, that sounds like contraband, uh, narcotics. What was it? 2,500 pounds of mail. 2,500 pounds of mail. 40,000 pieces of mail. Now, why was that a crime? I probably throw away that much a week. Or, I'm sorry, I put in my recycle bin so that Shirley Harris doesn't come and haunt me. Uh, that's it. If I put it in the recycle bin, that we can then uh, turn around and recycle it. But this was 40,000 pieces of mail, 2,500 pounds of mail. You see, the man who was arrested was a postal carrier, and he just didn't deliver it. Ten years, he just didn't deliver it and just let it pile up. He did deposit the paychecks that he got paid for doing that, but he indeed was a poor postal carrier, wasn't he? He was a poor messenger. He was a poor person uh, in terms of doing what he was required to do to be that intermediary between the person who was mailing the mail and the person who's supposed to be receiving the mail. He didn't do his job. And we look at that and we say, wow, what a, what a sorry, sorry mailman. What we're talking about this morning uh, has to do uh, with the application of that which has been accomplished by Jesus. Salvation, atonement, our redemption in Christ, accomplished in Christ and applied to us in a real way. We're talking about God's, we say, limited atonement, but the more accurate, the most faithful way of looking at that is a particular or a definite atonement of the work of Jesus to the children of God. And it's done by no postal carrier, but indeed by the Holy Spirit Himself. As we talked about with the children... Uh, that that gift of God would be addressed with your name on it, and it would be delivered to you faithfully by God's Holy Spirit. Let's look at God's Word. John chapter 11, it's 10, excuse me, beginning in verse 7. And so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door to the sheep. All who came before me are like thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's only a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Pray with me. This Lord God, we praise you to be such a faithful and wonderful text. Our Savior speaking to us. As not one who was simply doing a job dispassionately, but one who indeed loves the recipients of all that he earns. We thank you, Lord God, that we have a good shepherd. May we be faithfully guided to our understanding and application of this truth by your Holy Spirit and faithfulness. We praise you in the name of our Savior Jesus. 
Amen. Just by way of a brief recap, we are going through what we call the doctrines of grace. Doctrines of grace, we, we speak to them as, as five particular points, five sticking points that have been areas of discussion within the church um, uh, that we particularly look at biblically in, in a Reformed light. Now, we might refer to this as the five points of Calvinism, and as John Piper said, you can call me, uh, uh, he said, I, wanna, I don't want to begin as a Calvinist and then simply defend a system. I want to be a Bible-believing Christian, and I want to put the Bible above all systems of thought. I want us to look at what the Word says is what we want. So we think about these five points, five points that we do believe Scripture clearly bears out. Our extreme need of God's grace. We need God's grace. It's by grace we've been saved, uh, Ephesians 2 tells us. Not helped, not urged, not counseled. We've been saved by God's grace. We need to understand that, uh, that God uh, does not say, you need to clean yourself up and then I'll love you. He doesn't say, you need to do these things first and then that salvation will be yours. We speak about an unconditional election. We speak about an unearned grace, an unmerited favor that God loves us first before we're lovely. This morning we're talking about the L to make the friendly word. Remember, we think about the five points. We think about a tulip that helps us to remember it. I have a simple mind and um, I know I have company in the room and it's easy to remember things like that. Tulip, uh, limited atonement. A better word would be particular atonement. To pip, that's not a good word. But a particular atonement. Or a definite atonement. To dip, that's, that gets weirder. But we think about tulip, that, that idea. The limited atonement, that is uh, that God's atonement through Jesus Christ, the payment of sins is particularly applied to the children of God. Irresistible grace is the, the fourth point. That is that God does draw us. He changes our heart. Like Paul on the Damascus road, uh, Jesus encounters him. Jesus comes to him. Jesus knocks him down. Jesus blinds his eyes and Jesus cries out, why are you persecuting me? And what happens in that moment is Paul's heart is changed. It's not a, a series of options that are laid before Paul and says, hey, do what you want. It's God brings him, and we'll talk about that next time, the idea that, that, uh, that God, He does effectually draw us to Him. And then that wonderful truth, that truth we talked about this morning in children's and youth Sunday school, is that idea that, that we might be assured and we might persevere, that we might know that we are saved. And so what we are doing now is we're working through these particular doctrines and we want to make sure that we're going to God's Word and that we are preaching and we are teaching and we are studying for what the Bible actually says and not just for what we might want it to say. So we come to this third point, this idea of limited atonement. Like I said, a better word's particular, definite. I think about specific I think about this idea that what Jesus did was not just a generic action, but it was mindful and it was loving. An old gospel song that says, while Jesus was on the cross, I was on his mind. And there's a, a really wonderful biblical truth to that. That even as our Savior was praying for those around him, those around him who were persecuting, mocking, scorning him, when he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do praying for them. Specifically, he was interceding and he was paying the price for us 
specifically. But we need to unpack just a couple of things, and it's particularly important that we do so as we come to the table this Sunday morning. It's that idea when we talk about the atonement, that is, when Christ paid for our sins, that we come to the table and we're very mindful of that, not just in a sermon of words, but in a sermon of sensible signs placed before us in the Lord's table. What is the atonement? The atonement is the work of God in Christ through His obedience, through His death, where He cancels our debt for sin. Jesus cancels our debt for sin. He appeases the wrath of God due our sin. And He has won for us all the benefits of salvation. Or simply put, I love Gresham Machen. He says this of the atonement. He lived in the early 20th century. Uh, Gresham Machen said of atonement, the Bible doctrine isn't intricate. It's not subtle. On the contrary, though it involves mystery, it's itself so simple that any child can understand it. Atonement is this. Christ died for our salvation. Plain and simple, Christ died for our salvation. This is atonement. 2 Corinthians 5.21 gives us a picture of this, talking about the work of God, talking about the, uh, the plan of God effectually made real in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That upon the cross, Christ paid the penalty of our sin. God looked upon Him and He saw our sin. God poured out His wrath on Jesus instead of upon us. Christ stood in our place. Let's step back in literature just a bit. Not back from the Bible, but back from our day here today. And Think about Charles Dickens. He began his novel as the best of times. It was... Right, what novel begins that way? Are you awake? Tale of Two Cities, very good. I was concerned this morning we had so much co- uh, coffee, so much cake, uh, donuts, and shortbread. I was thinking, uh, folks may be awake this morning, but boy, they're going to be keyed up. But you're awake, you're alert, I like that. Tale of Two Cities, what happened? Sidney Car- uh, Carton uh, dies for Charles Darnay, doesn't he? The Frenchman has been condemned uh, to die by the guillotine. Uh, so Sidney, an English lawyer, he's wasted his gift, he's... He's had all sorts of opportunity, but he, he, he tore those down through his riotous living. And when he learns about Charles Darnay, his friend, he determines to save him by laying down his own life. He does so because not so much necessarily just for the man, but also for his wife and for his child, paid the price so that someone else would benefit and gain. And so he gains admission to the dungeon the night before the execution, changes garments with a condemned man, the next day is let out and put to death. As we see him ascending the steps in this novel, and we think about why is this such a rich novel, why is this such a popular and enduring novel, is because it picks up on a theme that we need to know, a theme that is embraced in God's Word, particularly emblazoned upon eternity. We see a godly theme, even though it's, it's been written in different, different words here, and even though Dickens may not have necessarily uh, intended it to be a lesson to this direction, Dickens picked up on the fact that it's a compelling theme. You see, Sidney ascends the steps to the place of death. His hands are bound behind his back. He takes his last look of the world. And there these words come to mind. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The words of John chapter 15. A man standing in place of another. We look at the reality of the incarnation, the fact that Jesus is the God-man, 
fully God, fully man. He doesn't stand just in the place of one sinner. He stands in the place of all of God's children and pays the price. It's an actual paying of a price. It is an actual sacrifice for sins. It is an actual completion of all that was required for our salvation. And that's the significance of this particular point that we're looking at in these doctrines of grace. An actual paying of a price. An actual sacrifice for sins. An actual completion of all that is required. Biblically, we see this too. Biblically, in the, <coughs> excuse me, in the story of Hosea, don't we see this? Hosea goes and he actually pays the price to purchase Gomer from her life of prostitution. He takes her home. He restores her and her children. He, he does it all. He does it all in love. And this is a prophetic message to help us to understand what was to come in Jesus Christ. So we've talked about what atonement is. Simply put, Christ dying for our salvation. A definite atonement. A limited atonement. A particular atonement is this that it's atonement designed for definite individuals who are fully saved by it. You see, God has people. We look in the Old Testament, we think about uh, the children of Israel had no qualms, had no hesitation with being referred to in Scripture and amongst themselves as God's chosen people. A peculiar people is what Peter calls us, a, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. God has particularly called us to be His people. God has His people in mind in the design of the atonement to purchase the blessings of salvation for them. And so we think about the idea that upon the cross, Jesus did all that was required for our salvation. And so we would say we do believe in a limited atonement. But when I say that, let me say this. If you're not a universalist, what's a universalist? A universalist is somebody who simply believes all you've got to do to get to heaven is die. That's, that's one requirement. You close your eyes and everybody goes to heaven. That's a universalist. Uh, scripture does not teach universalism. Scripture teaches, unfortunately, that many will die uh, and that, that hell is their eternal destination. Many will die apart uh, from the, the, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Many will die apart from a knowledge of Him as Lord and Savior. If you're not a universalist, then everyone limits the atonement, by the way. You're going to limit it in one of two ways. The atonement, what Jesus did on the cross, you're either going to limit the effect of it, or you're going to limit the extent of it. You're going to limit uh, what was accomplished there, or who it was accomplished for. Those are the only two options there. Now, those who claim unlimited atonement as their system, but they don't believe in universalism, then what they've done is they've limited, they've limited what took place there. They would say that upon the cross, Jesus simply accomplished the possibility of salvation. Jesus uh, simply made it available, but not actual. And so the implication of that is, if, if Jesus did not accomplish it on the cross, but simply made it as a possibility out there, something else has to happen. And those who would say that they believe in unlimited atonement, what they've done is they've limited what Jesus did. And I don't say that to be mean. I'm just saying that in reality. What they've done is they've said that Jesus, that His redemption, uh, that His atonement has not been applied to anybody. It's simply a blank check that's out there. But what we say is they stop short. 
they stop short of what Jesus did. Jesus did more. Jesus did more is that these things have been particularly applied by the work of the Spirit to the children of God. What He did on the cross was He died for me. He died for you. If you are a child of God, He died for you and it was all paid for. It is finished, our Savior says. There would have been in the day, in the marketplace many times, uh, those who would go around and pick up uh, scraps of, of parchment, scraps of anything that they could find because, well, paper and things to write on, cloth and those sorts of things were quite valuable. And what you'd find in the marketplace quite often uh, was a scrap of, of something that would have emblazoned upon it the word tetelestai. The tetelestai uh, simply was like a receipt. It would give it to you and say, uh, this is paid in full. Here is your, your, your proof of that. That we have completed the transaction. It's done. Tetelestai. And what's amazing is that was the word uh, that, that short of uh, uh, his last words, our Savior said, Tetelestai. He cried out before uh, his death, It is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. The transaction has been paid. Salvation has been accomplished. No more need be done. The critical question of the atonement. The critical question that we're dealing with here is when Jesus says the debt has been paid, whose debt did He pay? It is finished. Who has He saved? When we look at the atonement, we have to ask the critical question, for whom did Christ die? We believe that Christ died for the children of God. That He did not, upon the cross, do the same thing for Adolf Hitler that he did for Billy Graham. You see, God's love is specifically applied and specifically applied in the work of Jesus and specifically applied to those who love Him, to His children. Just like I would do things differently for my own son as I would do for others because of that unique relationship. If you say that Jesus died for every human being in the same way, then you have to define the atonement in a different way. You have to define it in a radically different way than if you believed Christ died only for God's children. In the first case, you would believe that the death of Christ didn't actually save anybody. It just made men savable. It did not actually remove God's punishment from anyone. It simply created a place where they could themselves go and find mercy. If they could accomplish then their own new birth, they could bring themselves to faith. And the irresistible grace of God would not be necessary. It's simply something set on the shelf or like we talked about with the kids, simply this wonderful present uh, that has been bought and has been wrapped and paid for and boxed up and then put on a shelf somewhere and we hope that people will find it. And God just simply wrings His hands and says, I, I certainly hope, I certainly hope that that gift will be unwrapped by someone. And His promise to Abraham uh, was just wishful thinking when He said, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. For if Christ died in the same way for all men, then He did not purchase regenerating grace for those who are saved. In some way, they must regenerate themselves. They must change their own hearts. But when you look in Scripture, now this is something I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to rile you up, except in a good way. When you read through the testimony of biblical witnessing, biblical sharing of the gospel you're not going to find the language that we become so fond of using. 
You're not going to find in Scripture the language of something like this. You know what you need to do? You just need to invite Jesus into your heart. You'll find no evangelist in the New Testament that goes up to someone and says, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. There is a reality to, to that, that there is that, that prayer that, that we would make in our, in our faith at some point, saying, saying, saying Lord, I, I do surrender to you. I, I pour out my life. I ask that you would lead me and guide me. I pray that you would inhabit me. I pray that you would be. In essence, we do ask Jesus into our heart, but that is not what accomplishes our salvation. What we read about in Scripture and what we see happening is this, that at a wonderfully spiritually, physiologically way, uh, if you can think spiritually, physiologically, is the idea that, that God has to do heart surgery on us. He has to change our heart. He has to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. And so you see, if salvation is simply a box that's set on a shelf, and if that box is set on a shelf, hoping folks will find it, but there's no one who seeks God, no, not one, Romans 3 tells us, nobody will ever find the box. But what happened? What happened? Upon the cross, Jesus, Jesus died for the elect. Biblical word, biblical concept, biblical truth that there have been those who have been saved from the foundation of the world. Now, how do we live in light of that? Well, we live not knowing. We don't know. We don't have the Lamb's book of life to go through there and saying, I'm going to speak to you, but not to you, because we don't know. God knows these things, and we share the gospel, and the truth is, whoever believes will be saved. But we won't, be, we won't believe unless the Spirit changes our heart. But we get back to what Jesus did. Jesus paid for my sins. And for yours. Matthew 26, 28. 26, 28. We're going to think about that as we come to the table in a moment. When Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus paid the debt. We read about that in Acts chapter 20. As Paul speaking to the, uh, the Ephesian elders, he says, You elders, be on the guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. God paid. God's wrath was appeased. Everything that needed to take place took place in Jesus Christ and has applied to us by God's Holy Spirit. Jesus says that He has come to seek and to save, not seek and make salvation possible. Mark chapter 10 says, Even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that he would pay it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. If we've been washed by the death of Jesus Christ, then nothing else need be done. That God will bring to, bring to pass in our heart uh, that changing, that grace. And what do we do? We go and we proclaim that truth. That flee to the cross. Yes, run to the cross. We, we say, because you find on the cross that everything has been done. We don't limit the atonement in terms of what Jesus did. We simply say that Jesus died specifically for the elect, for the people of God. We're going to sing it after the table uh, this morning. It is enough that Jesus died, and that He died for me. Christians, this isn't a, a greedy thing. This isn't something we sit back and we say, well, look, Jesus died for me and not for you. No, what we do is we say, 
and the mystery of God's grace and the infinity of His love, what an incredible thing, though I don't understand it, is that God would love me and that God would do all that is necessary to accomplish my salvation. All to Him. All to Him I owe. Praise God. If you this morning, if if you're not certain about what Jesus did and did He do it for you, well, first off, as we come to the table this morning, I encourage you to, uh, to, to do your business with God, to confess your sin before Him, and to say, I am thankful that Jesus Christ has paid the price of sin. And I pray, Lord God, I pray and give you thanks that you paid for my sin fully and eternally. May God be praised. Let's come to the throne of grace together as we prepare for the table. Almighty God, This idea of the specific application of your love and the cross of Jesus Christ is tough. For we ask with the prophet, who has known the mind of God and who has discerned his comings and goings? But Lord, the word is is clear that Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. And Lord God, that this is real and it's true and it's complete. We praise you, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit is no poor postman, but an effective conveyor of those things of Jesus Christ, those things which he has done applied to our lives, atonement real, full, and lasting. Be with us, Lord God, as we come to the table now, as we remember that our Savior died for us, broken, poured out, that we might be whole and healed. We thank you and praise you in the name of our Savior Jesus, who did it all. Amen.